inya mana, inya reo, inya waka, inya monga, inya awa, inya mate, inya iwi hurunua, ite whenua nei. Nau mai haere mai, ki te kaupapa o nga kaituhi, me nga kaipanui o te torima o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Kia ora koutou. Welcome everyone to this New Zealand Festival of the Arts Writers event. Sex, politics and gender. Not much to discuss there then. <laughs> I'm Catherine Ryan, host of RNZ National's 9 to noon programme and in the chair for this conversation. May I introduce our guests? Dame Marilyn Waring is a pioneer in the field of feminist economics. Her book, Counting for Nothing, or If Women Counted, published in 1988, persuaded the United Nations to redefine gross domestic product, inspired new accounting methods in dozens of countries, and became the founding document of the discipline of feminist economics. A widely cited book had made the analysis of this topic known to a large audience. Marilyn's biography, The Political Years, describes her time as an MP. It's a compelling record of Marilyn's political and personal efforts and experiences inside the system. It is autobiography, of course. Marilyn has published numerous books as well as continuing to contribute to the public service through university fellowships around the world, in consultancy as well, con contributions to boards and councils in New Zealand as well as her work in academia. She has numerous awards and recognition to her name. Marilyn is today a professor of public policy at Auckland University of Technology. Please welcome her. <laughs> Kristen, when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, Kristen R. Godsey was travelling in Europe and spent the summer of 1990 witnessing firsthand the initial hope and euphoria that followed the sudden and unexpected collapse of state socialism in the former Eastern Bloc. The political and economic chaos that followed inspired her to pursue an academic career studying this upheaval, focusing on how ordinary people's lives, and women's particularly, changed when state socialism gave way to capitalism. For the last two decades, she has visited the region regularly and lived for over three years in Bulgaria and the eastern parts of reunified Germany. Now a professor of Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, she's won many awards for her work, has written nine books on gender, socialism and post-socialism. She also writes on women's issues for the Chronicle of Higher Education and is the co-author of Professor Mommy, Finding Work, Family Balance in Academia. Please welcome Kristen. <laughs> Marilyn and Kristen, let's get underway. Women's unpaid labour has been a major area of research and expertise for you both. An Oxfam report from January valued women's unpaid care work globally at $10.9 trillion. Why is it so hard to achieve genuine recognition and appropriate responses to this economic, social and personal reality for women? What would they be? Kristen, could you speak first to the Oxfam report? Right, so the Oxfam report is a really interesting, uh, it was a study that used minimum wage uh, as a proxy for the value of this work. And they looked at a, a basket of countries for which they had data, so it wasn't completely the entire world. Um, and what we, you know, what we were looking at when we, um, I also wrote a piece um, using that data and we compared it with OEC data on time use. So the, the um, breakdown of men and women's unpaid labor in the home. 
And what Oxfam had done was they basically divided the total unpaid labor by the percentage of the population that was female. And they didn't take into account the differential of unpaid time versus men and women. So that $10.9 trillion is an incredible underestimation of that labor. First, because they use only minimum wage. Secondly, because they don't have all the countries included. And thirdly, because they're not actually looking at the distribution. But even so, uh, my colleague Gus Vezarek and I, we looked at Fortune 500's top 50 companies on the global list which, for which we have public information. And when we added the total revenue for the top 50 global corporations, including Amazon and Apple and Facebook and Walmart and all these big corporations, it was less than the value of women's unpaid labor globally, even at this very conservative estimate. So I think, you know, again, um, Marilyn Waring's work here is so foundational to this field, and it's so frustrating to me that all these years later we're still having to write these columns and have these conversations. And that column appeared on March 5th, so just a 10 days ago, I guess, it's nine days ago, and it got like 804 comments before the New York Times cut everybody off. And the level of misogyny and sexism and hatred and vitriol that people spewed made me realize that this is not obvious to people and that we're still a long way from really making women count. Marilyn, as Kristen said, this is central to so much of your work of decades. Again, why are we still not counting? Um, I began my work thinking that the solution was, in fact, to have a guesstimate, a monetized uh, amount, to demonstrate um, how much unpaid productive, reproductive service work. So the whole gambit of unpaid work um, there was, and that to make that visible, remembering I'd come straight from a parliamentary framework so at that point, my overwhelming objective was to have all of this visible for public policy purposes, for redistributing general revenue, for example, uh, and to redistributing that with the, with the focus, with the beginning point being a pregnant woman, and then follow that all the way, and have the kind of resource inputs in that. Well, then I wrote a different introduction to the second edition uh, of the book, and I was moving a little bit, um, but now I'm, I'm totally in a place of thinking that putting a monetary value on it is not impactful. I can remember a woman called Joanne Vanek writing a similar column to that in the New York Times in the Scientific American in 1979. There were people like Derek Blades at the OECD in the early 1970s who were trying to value that work. And he in particular was looking at um, unpaid subsistence agriculture, because overwhelmingly in the so-called developing world that was done by women, and they were just blissfully ignored. Uh, at this point in 2020, and possibly mirroring mm -hmm. that reaction you got, 
is that now the patriarchy understands what it would really mean. And it would mean a complete redistribution of public revenue based on redistributing to and supporting the most productive enterprise in our economy. And that is women's unpaid work, not restricted to the household. Because even when the Statistical Commission did change the boundary of production after my work, so they changed the rule, does it change the practice in India? Never. Do they count all women's unpaid subsistence agriculture? And they're very statistically advanced. No. Why? Because the men can see what it will mean. Kristen, is that the bottom line? And these are often people who think in bottom lines they are treasuries uh, or they are academics or analysts uh, advising governments. Is that the bottom line? It's not that people don't understand the value of the unpaid labour or its inverse, the impact on the life of the person doing it and the well-being of the person doing it. It's that they do understand it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that's precisely why we had the reaction that we did. You know, particularly, there's a political moment in the United States with people like Bernie Sanders talking about democratic socialism or young congresswomen like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And one of the things that we look at in the OECD data, which is very clear, is that in countries with the least gender gap between men and women in unpaid labor, and this wasn't only in the home, this was total unpaid labor, um, it's countries that have a robust social safety net that are redistributing either through taxation and redistribution or through some kind of collective ownership of enterprises, um, and they're supporting care work, and they're supporting um, parts of volunteer work, parts of our, our societies which are incredibly valuable, which are incredibly important, but which the patriarchy does not want to put a dollar figure on, because if they do, it would hit profits. It would mean increasing taxation on things like corporations. And so people like Silvia Federici, for instance, has talked a lot about how, you know, women subsidize capitalism mm. in a profound way, absolutely. absolutely profound way. And so I do think that the, the reason that this um, the reaction was so strong was precisely because, as Marilyn just pointed out, the men know what it's going to cost. They understand that if you suddenly decide to radically expand the social safety net, that's going to come out of somebody's private profit. And especially in a country like the United States where I live, where we have this incredible level of income inequality, more and more resources being concentrated into the hands of fewer and fewer people, this is a global problem, it's not just the US, it's just really extreme there. Um, any kind of talk of valuing women's unpaid labor, or any unpaid labor for that matter, because mm. men do some of it too. And children. And children, absolutely, means um, really rethinking the profit motive and really rethinking some of the foundational um, principles of what I like to call, or what is often called, cutthroat capitalism, right? Is the emergence of a precariat that is both male and female going to change this conversation? In other words, are there going to be more um, men who are affected by uh, broken incomes, yes. lack of coverage in healthcare, low incomes, logically in need of the kind of redistribution that uh, some states provide and others do not provide? 
Is it going to change the conversation? Well, I think it, it's already starting to change the conversation, particularly when we look at the electorate, just the recent primaries, and how people, the generational divide. There was a column in the New York Times this morning about how young people overwhelmingly went for Sanders and older voters overwhelmingly went for Biden in the primary. But I mean, even um, here in New Zealand, you know, I, I've heard, I've, gotten, I've only been here for about five days, and I've gotten an earful about housing prices uh, from young people. I, is it true that the average house in, in, in Wellington is like eight? $800,000, and in Auckland, it's a million dollars. And, um, you know, women only get five months of paid parental leave, and then there's this gap before your child turns three. So there are uh, this precariat, this, uh, this means that people are delaying families. They're not able to start, um, you know, they're not able to buy a home, so people are commuting out of, in and out of Carterton or Masterton, which is like an hour and a half away or whatever, I'm not really sure. Um, but I do think that what's happening in the United States in 2017, Pew did a really interesting survey that found that 70% of Americans, 71% of Americans believe that in order to be a good partner, a man has to be a financial provider. That's an incredible amount of stress on young man in a gig economy, um, on anybody in a gig economy. But it particularly, I think that when we outsource all of this unpaid, really valuable, important labor, ultimately, to the home, and it gets uh, devalued, what we see across the developed world, especially if we look at Eastern Europe and what happened after 89, um, birth rates are plummeting. Right? So we have this massive contraction in advanced capitalist countries where women just say it's impossible to have children under these circumstances. Now, in a capitalist global economy where something like 65% of our global GDP, again, this is using that measure, is consumption, if you have fewer consumers and fewer taxpayers, in the long run, this is not a system that's sustainable. And so I absolutely think it is forcing the conversation, as well as things like climate change, as well as things like COVID-19, right? The market is not well prepared to deal with collective problems that require collective solutions. And I want to talk about some of the official advice that our political leaders get, Marilyn, because uh, we see efforts now, governments beginning to attempt well-being exercises that look at things like unpaid uh, labour, <laughs> I'm really interested in how often leisure seems to leap over unpaid labour in time use survey analysis. You might want to speak more to this. You were um, scathing, really, in, in your recent BWB book, still counting, over how the Treasury here has designed the wellbeing framework. When we begin to analyse uh, unpaid labour as part of our economies, where does it go wrong? Where is it so often misguided? Well, I think the, the key problem is that, in fact, we do try to make a monetary value for it, right? And that way we co-opt it entirely into this system that thinks, you know, munitions manufacturing and the black market and everything from people to drugs to pharmaceuticals to armaments is all great for growth. Well, I don't find it an answer to think, then we'll go and put a market value on the work that is creating and sustaining humans on the planet. Um, and besides, like Kristen, over the years, I've got really sick of it always being undervalued. You know, um, people talk about care work 
And if you then look at the um, discriminatory payments <laughs> made in care-paid work, which are overwhelmingly gendered, um, it, it, there's no pay equity factored into it. Any one of you who has ever cared for somebody who is totally dependent, you will know this is not about toileting, showering, feeding. This is an extraordinary technical, logistical, administrative, scarcely sleeping endeavour. That's what it is. It's a very high-powered job. And it is affecting your own health when you do that job. So I also get really tired of seeing it encapsulated in these little silos called caring. Then I do not know an efficient woman carer who does not do two or more tasks simultaneously. <laughs> if you're only doing one, you wonder what you're doing wrong. <laughs> no, truly. Yes. And, and we do know from time use surveys that there's a really major distinction between women, the simultaneity of output of women and the singularity of doing a task for men. And so time is what I come back to all the time. Um, and we can measure this. It's not one of those cheap and dirty telephone calls that says, do you remember what you did in the last 48 hours? Or, you know, one of the ones that just asks the head of the household, ha ha, like they would know. Uh, <laughs> you know, how much unpaid work is going on in here. Um, then the other problem with the New Zealand approach to well-being is it's Eurocentric, and just like being colonised, we said, oh, well, we'll have that and lap it up. In a context where Statistics New Zealand had already had one round of te kupinga, the Māori-written, Māori framework for well-being, and we're piloting the second round of te kupenga. Treasury has a well-being paradigm that has no Māori values whatsoever. No whanangatanga, no kaitiakitanga, nothing. And I just found that absolutely outrageous. And I think we're tired of having Eurocentric ideas imposed on us. And we just don't have to do it that way. The other really major objection is, and this is, you have to understand, out of Treasury and economics, and you would understand this is not <laughs> unusual at all. One of the things I write about and still counting is that economics has not ever understood ontologies, what is there, epistemologies, how do I know what I know, or even alternative methodologies. Economics has no idea about fundamentals of academic interest like that. And so the, the New Zealand Treasury's well-being scenario says, well, we have all of these objective indicators, you know, right? That's all about, you know, earnings and the workforce and all of these things. But we have to put a couple of subjective indicators in there. And one of the subjective indicators that is asked is, do you feel safe in your community at night? 
And then they generically report the data. There's a 40% differential in New Zealand between the answers of men and women, let alone third gender persons. And I can say, yes, I might feel safe in my community at night, but not in some others. And what about the daytime? And what about at work? And what about everywhere else? Why just safe in my community at night? What about my household? This is how daft it is. <laughs> I want us to move forward, but I asked at the outset, what would the appropriate policy responses be were this reality to be acted on? Kristen. So, yeah, I mean, I make it pretty clear in my book that I'm talking about the full socialization of this labor. I don't, I don't want to hear about wages for housework. I don't want to hear about monetary values. I mean, we do that um, exercise. I think Oxfam did that exercise to just try to point out the scale of the problem, right? Um, I don't think they were going to write a check to, you know, Bezos and Zuckerberg and whoever to pay it. Um, but I do think that we have democratic societies and that in our democratic societies, we can use the state as a vehicle for representing citizen interests. That's what a democracy is supposed to be about. And if we understand collectively that this labor has value, however you measure it, whether it's in time, uh, taking into account the ontological questions and the epistemological questions about how we know what we know and the ways that we see the world, I think that ultimately the data is pretty clear. And that's why my research on the um, change in women's lives from 1989 to the present in Eastern Europe is such a perfect natural experiment. When mm. states take an active role in supporting child care and elder care and health care and the kinds of things that we value in society, community building, collectivity, right? Um, even just basic sort of sociality, things like the New Zealand Festival of the Arts, right? That it creates stronger, more robust societies um, that ultimately are better for both men and women, but also narrow this gender gap between men and women in a really profound way. And so it has to be some kind of collective solution. There's no doubt about it. I think in, in still counting, um, trying to look just to flip it. So I've, as I've said, I would use my starting point, here is a pregnant woman, right? Is the child safe, is the woman safe? And, and safe, by safe, it's that wonderful old Nina Simone definition of, of what does freedom mean, mm -hmm. right? What does freedom mean? No fear. So we take the woman and we take the child, and what might they be afraid of? And so how do we address that? Whether that's housing, food, a violent partner, whatever it is, we, we have a place to start. And the other thing that we really have to deal with is that the world is moving towards a universal basic income, or whatever it's going to be called. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, good old conservative New Zealanders say, some basic income, and I emphasise the old, I turn to them and I say, but darling, you're already on it. <laughs> it's called national superannuation. Yeah. We've got nearly 800,000 people on this, and we've had it in the population since 1977. So we have 
a great deal of information about how people behave when you give them a universal basic income. Do they all go and sit in front of the telly and never make use of another minute of their lives? No, they don't. They get into community and voluntary work. Some of them keep on in paid work. Some of them get the best health they've ever had because they've had really difficult, challenging, dirty jobs, and finally they have an income where they can actually take care of their health and get on with their well-being. They spend more time in social and community spaces and places. So New Zealand is very well established in what a universal basic income means. And I'm sure that we all have to be planning in that direction. We've talked a lot about the economics and the economic systems and their impacts. Kristen, in your, in your book, your most recent book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, you also talked about how this comes down to the personal dynamics of relationships and the homes. Mm. And again, doing the compare and the contrast before and after uh, the Eastern Blocs became deregulated, the Eastern Bloc nations. What would you highlight? Well, I mean, so that's the, this idea is that our personal lives, in some ways, the, the politics impacts the personal, right? Um, the, the political is personal as well as the personal is political. It's a dialectic relationship between the two things. And I think that too often when we live our ordinary lives, and particularly in our friendships and our intimate relationships, we, we tend to sort of block out political economy as if it doesn't actually impact the way we live day to day. And that's just ridiculous. So one of the things that I tried to do in this study, and again, it's based on lots of research that had been done both pre and post 1989 on the way that people talked about the they framed their relationships with their partners, in, primarily in heterosexual relationships, but they also talk a lot about friendships and sociality. And what we see is that when, I mean, this is like not really a big surprise, that when people have more time and are less stressed, when they have a greater social safety net and they're less precarious, right, that they're surprisingly happier and <laughs> more willing to um, share their affective resources with the people around them. When people are constantly worried about scarcity, when they're worried about losing a job or losing a house or not making rent or not having health care, as in my country, um, and everything is a zero-sum game, you know, it, it creates a very nasty society. And particularly, I think, in romantic relationships, um, you know, again, another survey from 2006 in the United States, 28% of Americans believe that financial security is a very important reason to get married. That's almost a third of Americans believe that you married for financial security, not because you love somebody, not because you find them attractive, <laughs> not because they're interesting, but because they might actually help you pay your rent. And I think that, that, that element of calculation that enters into our relationships can be very toxic in the long run. And so one of the things that I think we really need to think about is, and this is why I love the, the, your discussion about ontologies and epistemologies when we think about well-being. What do we mean mm. when we say well-being? Because... You know, as I walk along the streets, you know, down by the, by the, the um, wharf, the, the harbor, and I, you know, I overhear conversations. I'm, a, I th I'm trained as an anthropologist, so I'm a professional eavesdropper, I think. And, you know, and what do people, what do young people talk about primarily in their lives? Their relationships and their friends, 
right? It's the things that people are animate people's lives. It's like, what's going on? You know, what did he say? Why didn't he call me? Why didn't he text me? Is he ghosting me? Should I call him? You know, <laughs> we've all been there. Um, or, you know, my friend, like, you know, she said she was going to meet me and she's not here. And, that, and, in, and then I saw a picture of her on Instagram with this other person somewhere else. And why did she do that? And what's going on? So I think our personal relationships are really important. And one of the things that we need to think about when we think about well-being is what are the political and economic conditions and social conditions that we can create to have a more robust idea of sociality, of how our societies can be more, um, not only equitable, but more conducive to like, you know, comfortable, open, friendly relations with each other, rather than always kind of, you know, going, I don't, I don't know if this happens in New Zealand, but you know, you go to a, a cocktail party or you go to a party in the United States and the first thing people say is like, oh, what do you do? And um, my daughter calls it shifty eye syndrome. So you're standing at somebody in a, a cocktail party and their eyes are scanning the room to see who's more important, who's walked in, who they can go talk to. So rather than just having a conversation, you're just constantly, every human interaction becomes a potential um, transaction. And I think that we should talk about that more openly. Women are underrepresented in national politics and political power in most nations. What are the costs to our societies? Is politics still sexist? Well, look what happened to Warren. Yeah. You know, the person who'd done the most policy work, the person who'd finally costed out the cliches, the person who performed formidably in the debates, uh, the person who at the same time was so kind and fair, the person whose whole teams would remain for hours um, talking with her and with the teams after the events that she held. So that to me is a, you know, is a, is a very real indication of um, how it runs. Much closer to home, we can look at how Julia Gillard was treated uh, across the Tasman in, in Australia. Um, we think differently. We see things, unless we're so co-opted and, and silo-trained, and you can be co-opted and silo-trained, uh, but uh, because it's a point of, point of least resistance for a lot of people. Uh, we do. We, our, our world views, because of what we notice, is very different. Our language to each other is different. Our comprehension, for a lot of us anyway, that if you live as a person who is discriminated against for some reasons, you are far more likely to understand others' treatment uh, in terms of having discriminatory experiences. What does that mean to a nation to lose? Here I'm not just talking about, uh, well, in fact, getting into politics is not a matter of intellect. I think that's 2020 makes that really, really <laughs> obvious. Um, Though I can say, in the New Zealand Parliament in 2020, there are far more intelligent people there than there were in 1975, and mostly, they're a generation younger. And the fact that there are no longer four women, but that 40-something percent of the people who are in the Parliament are women, 
begins to transform some of that language. I've got no idea if you've been into any of the changed East European parliaments. But I can remember, I was on the sheep meats delegation <laughs> in the late 1970s, and I think it was Denmark, and it, or it may have been the Netherlands. But I walked into a parliament where they did not sit opposing each other. Now, they sat like they were in a classroom, and nobody's desk was your desk. You came in and you sat at the next desk. You didn't sit even in party huddles. The person who was talking was up the front, like a lecturer, yes, and they were standing, and all the rest of you were sitting. But the change in the architecture dramatically changed the tone in the room. That's not difficult. And one of the things I know after 50-something years as a feminist, I think I probably got there by the time I was about 10, um, <laughs> um, is that when we go into halls to have a meeting, what is the first thing we do? We change the furniture. We change the furniture so we can all see each other. We change the furniture so we can all hear each other. We do not have to sit with battle lines formed, throwing empty rhetoric and wasting God knows how much a minute in a parliamentary process. Kristen, <laughs> what are the barriers and dynamics that entrench this? I think there are lots of barriers and dynamics. I mean, this is a, a much broader question because, you know, a lot of women also are very conservative. Uh, politicians, right? So we have people like Sarah Palin, I don't know if you remember her in we the do. United States. She could see Russia from her front door. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But, you know, people also, you know, like Jean Kirkpat Kirkpatrick in the 80s, who was a pretty nasty woman, um, <laughs> to use that Trumpian term, um, you know, who thought it was a good idea for Americans to support right-wing dictatorships, for instance, in Latin America, as long as they did what we said to do. So I think that there is, um, it's what Marilyn was just saying about you can get siloed and co-opted. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of women in politics, especially in my country, do get siloed and co-opted. That's changing now with the last midterm election and these young, again, they're young, the, right. the squad, like Rashida Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez um, and Oman, mm. Ilar Oman, right? That, the, that the, these are young women who are kind of like trying to change the political conversation. And so I'm very hopeful for the next generation. But I do think that, you know, when we look at some of the, especially in Europe, when we look at far right-wing parties like Marine Le Pen in France, and, you know, sometimes it's women who head up those parties. Um, Frauke Petri in the AfD in Germany. So, you know, it's not just about having representation of women. It's also about having the right kinds of politics um, and the right kinds of, 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 of people. So I think it's a complicated, and it, it depends on where you are in the world and what the particular history is. And you've always got to be one step ahead. When I began working uh, well, in 1975 anyway, at the, let's say the Mexico City Conference and then on to Copenhagen, we spoke about women and development or women in development, right? And then came the change to the word gender. And what did that mean? Well, let me tell you exactly what it meant. In the South Pacific, it meant 
The boys really engaged with gender and development because they could argue that half of all the funds that formerly went to women now had to go to them because it was about gender, not about women. Mm -hmm. And there were a whole lot of people in the development industry that just didn't get it. And like, so they're, they're fast. You know, they're around every corner. You can't, <laughs> you can't get off the tightrope. You have to be eternally vigilant mm -hmm. and never, ever be under the illusion that this is for our good, yeah. all right? So you do, you just have to be. Language is such a key, yeah. isn't it? Watching language is so important and a place where often a lot of people give way. Mm -hmm. Um, and think, oh, it's just a little thing, it won't matter. But, you know, when you change women in development to gender in development, you've just done that to the whole world and you've just taken away 50% of the budget. One of the other things that we have to be conscious of the whole time is don't lose the specificity. Mm -hmm. Just don't lose it. So I sit there at my university driving them all crazy because they say, oh, but Statistics New Zealand just says Asian. And I go, I beg your pardon. Any data I'm using will be South Asian, Southeast Asian, Chinese, other Asian, then I might get to grips with the picture of what this is, just as Pacific peoples are really tired of being homogenised, and so are Iwi. You know, we've known this for 50 years. What are we, just lazy? One thing that the left is really good at historically is opposing somebody else, right? <laughs> so if we have a very clear orange person in the White House, then it's really easy to kind of link arms with those with whom we have a, we have a shared opposition to something. The problem then comes when you have to create those um, coalitions and maintain those coalitions afterwards. And that's where, unfortunately, this is where the constant vigilance is key because that's where patriarchy starts to rear its ugly head again, and suddenly women's issues, and this happened very clearly in the Eastern Bloc, the countries that I study, after the initial um, kind of revolutionary fervor wears off, well, women's issues, which were really important, or the nationalities questions, well, we're not going to deal with those right now. We've just got to focus on the bread and butter issues of industrialization, militarization, and these are all male prerogatives. So the constant vigilance, I think, is really key. It has been the rallying cry for a generation of feminists. The personal is political. Is it still Marilyn? For me, totally, yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter to me whether you de are defiant or in denial, both are political choices. Mm -hmm. um, for me, political is just about the dynamic of power. And it is almost universally spoken about, particularly by the patriarchy, as power over. And the dynamic is described as power over. Power with is a, is a wonderful thing to experience. Power for, you know, if you happen to be the only woman elected in the North Island for six years, you know, it's not ego that says you've got power for, it's desperation. Um, and, and power too. So there are people who do get places, who do make differences. So 
Uh, yes, the, as you said earlier, the political is personal and the personal is political. And it doesn't mean that we, you know, um, inhabit the space we did when we were 18, 36, 45. You know, our political and personal growth keeps changing that dynamic and hopefully making us more and more aware, you know, and the awareness doesn't mean, oh my God, it's so complicated, I've got to be too careful. Um, the awareness is about the necessity to keep on. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add that I think, especially for the younger generations, the role of ideology in their lives is really profound. People tend to blame themselves for systemic failings in society. It, there's a, a way in which, especially I teach university, and you know, they, um, my students, last 20 years, I feel like it's increasingly become apparent to me that they walk into my classroom as people who are not done yet. They don't think of themselves as being done, of being, you know, perfectly crafted for the market, selling themselves on the market. And sometimes I want to sit back and tell my students, you know, you're already a person. You're already done. You're pretty good as you are, right? You may not have the fancy job or the fancy car or the fancy whatever, but like, find a place in yourself and think about who you are and what you've achieved and what you've done and just be there for a little while. And to them, I feel like especially with young people in the United States, that just blows their mind. Nobody has ever told them that you're like, you're pretty good right now, right? And I think that that, it's because of this ideological, this, this way in which so many young people feel like they have to become a personal brand. Because I think that many people don't have the language to push back against that. To say, no, I am a human being independent of my market value. That's such a powerful statement. And not enough people even have the words to articulate that anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, in a minute we're going to move to questions. Are there some of you who have questions out there who'd like the opportunity to ask them? Could you raise your hands now? I'd like you to go in a little bit deeper about uh, generational things. I also teach at university and I also see like there's a difference in language and the importance of words we can give the next generation. Yeah, I mean, I do think that language is incredibly important and I also think that teaching so the, the power of role models is incredible. I also think there's a power of ideas. And, you know, it's not as if capitalism has lived its history without critique. And I think we forget that that critique goes back really to the beginnings of capitalism, that there have been people who have said, hey, you know, there are some problems with this economic system. And, and in fact, if we think about things that all of us enjoy, like the weekend, or the eight-hour day, or paid sick leave, or parental leave, these aren't things that the economic elites just gave us because we asked nicely. These are people fought for those things. And they, they, we have hundreds of years of history of people getting together, ordinary men and women, workers, standing up together and saying, enough, something has got to change. And I think that there are moments in history when something happens, there's a catalyst or there's a moment when people decide, okay, now we fight. And sometimes it's about individual people who take up the mantle and lead us, and sometimes it's about 
really just broad collectivities of people joining hands and saying, we have to change things for the sake of our politics, for the sake of our planet, and for the sake of our personal lives. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's the older, experienced ones who, who are doing the leading. So if we think about pay equity in this country and how it's stalled. It's stalled in MB, and it has stalled because MB thinks it's an employment issue. Mm as opposed to being sanctioned discrimination for generations. It is a human rights issue, not an employment issue. Right. Now, um, Kristen, you talked about the, um, talking to your students about them not just being a marketable thing. Right, and what I was trying to, to say without devolving into unnecessary terminological debates was that there's a difference between exchange value and use value. Um, and so, I, absolutely, I think that we are all interacting in a society that is determined um, heavily by these market influences. But when you leave the market, when you go to bed at night or when you're hanging out with somebody and you're not involved in a market transaction in any way, right, you, you still have use value. Right? Just because you're not commodifying that particular moment of your day, which is what I think that this, a lot of young people don't understand. That this is why students aren't sleeping. Right? It's the side hustle personal brand thing. Because every moment, every emotion, every thought has to be um, on brand or commodified in some way. And I think that this concept of use value versus exchange value is really important. Right? This glass has a use because it holds water that I can drink. What its market value is on the, on the um, you know, an exchange of supply and demand is irrelevant to whether or not I need the glass. And I think that when I say that the personal, the political is personal, it's absolutely the fact that the market is trying to take our use value as individuals. We can love, we can feel, we can share, we can think, we can do all sorts of things that have no market, but this is, this is why I love Marilyn's work so much. It's so important. To, to realize that the most important, valuable things in the world are not exchangeable. And they shouldn't be exchangeable. That's what I mean. Teaching people to understand the difference between exchange value and use value. We, as human beings, have use value independent of the market. And that's a radical concept. And I think that we need to talk about it much more than we do, especially to young people. And, and can I just add that it's also about the fact that you're 24 hours a day a political actor, right? It's not whether you're at, at paid employment or not. When the person, wherever you overhear them, the bus, the cable car, at work, on the radio, at home, starts to abuse Muslims, mm -hmm. you don't sit there passively. That's what it means. And that's got nothing to do with capital. Yeah. yeah. My question is, um, what one thing do you think will improve gender equality in New Zealand? Um, the, the, this gap between the five months of parental leave and then the 20 hours that you get when your child is three, that yeah. like chasm of care <laughs> that women need to fill, and it's largely women, um, that should be addressed in a profound way, because spending $350 a week on kindy 
is really outrageous in a country like New Zealand, as far as I know. And I know we're almost out of time, but I just want to say one other thing, which is, I was like 18 when your book came out. You're like such a hero of mine. <laughs> so to be up here on stage with you, I'm actually going to start crying. I feel, I feel so incredibly honored and, and blown away by this. I almost vomited before I got up on stage. Um, you guys have such a national treasure here. So, you know, make, if you want, you know, you should just take over the country and fix everything. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I admire your determination, so let's take the question. <laughs> Thank you. Well, my name's Pat Love. My children, I've got four children, 20 grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren, all a little bit of Pākehā, but Māori, Pacific Islander, Indian, and they've all suffered racism. And they... Um, I just keep saying to them, we've got to get back to what it used to be like, not the racism, we're doing good things as far as that goes, although it's slow. But I didn't have to pay for my education. Mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't have to pay to go to the doctor. All of those things. And they say to me, but mum, we'll never get back to that. Will yeah. we? Kia thank you. Can we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you always... I, I never talk about going back, right? Um, it's always about going forward, and especially if you've got four generations to take forward. Um, that's, that's very, very important, because, you know, if, if there was a young... So this has happened to me a number of times over the last... Well, especially on the book tour. OK, so... Um, you know, a young person will stand up and say, well, what would I suggest that they should do? And I say to them, you're asking somebody who's 67 years old, I have no idea what it is like to be 22 and at university in New Zealand in 2020. Do not ask old people what you should be doing. <laughs> Apart from your nan. Thank you for that contribution. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, may I just ask you to thank uh, our uh, guests here really much for their expertise and for their time. Dame Marilyn Waring and uh, Kristen Godsey and Kia ora. Thank you.